Shaky Town Radio Hour is on the air. I'm Brody Foster Hubbard. We are back in the Shaky Town studios at the Eagle's Nest. Uh, it's only the second time we've done an interview here, and we actually just means I. Um, I am hosting solo today, but I have a guest in the studio, so you can hear not only just me. Uh, don't worry, we're actually going to talk to an interesting person. Uh, and this is another first, because usually folks just show up for the interview, and we interview them, we chat, and it's fun, and they go. But I'm interrupting friend time to have my friend on the podcast, so we're having to, like, divert our conversation into a more official podcast box. Um, <laughs> uh, so let me introduce you to our guest today. She is the author of Grow, How to Take Your DIY Project and Passion to the Next Level and Quit Your Job. Uh, not only that, but she does Indulgence Zine, and uh, she performed in the band Karita uh, and has some new music projects perhaps she'll talk to us about, and does a whole bunch of other stuff that we're excited to hear about today. Eleanor Whitney, Welcome. Thanks for having me, Brody. I'm really happy to be here at the Eagle's Nest to yes. talk to you this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you for ascending the heights into uh, our, our little studio here. Um, so yeah, we were just talking about the mountains. I don't know the mountains here. This is a, a reoccurring theme. I lived in Phoenix and there were many mountains and I couldn't tell you what the names of the ranges were. I couldn't tell you, like, the best hiking pass. I'm really not good at local topography. That's okay. So I'm sorry. I'll, I'll forgive you. Right. I grew up the child of a forester and a landscape architect who had a strong interest in geography. So I had to learn lots about local topography. So I'm always very curious. Yeah. But I could probably answer these questions myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we will be touring, though, other parts of the geography, the urban parts. Mm -hmm. um, Eleanor is in town, and we're hanging out, having a good time. Hopefully have some vegan donuts later if uh, the vegan donut place is open. Uh, gather some like-minded folks for fun and conversation. Um, but right now, I'm going to interrogate you. Sounds so. fine. I'm up for it. All right. Um, you grew up in Portland, Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, you spent your, your whole childhood there? Yes, um, and I actually grew up a little bit outside Portland, Maine, but Portland area. Yeah, I spent my whole childhood, so from age 0 to uh, age 19, when I moved to the other Portland, Portland, Oregon. Right, <laughs> which is, I, I thought that was neat, that you lived in two cities with the same name. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know a whole lot about Maine outside of Stephen King novels. That's interesting you bring that up, because I've never read one. Oh, okay. I'm a big wuss, and I really do like horror things, um, though my sister is obsessed with uh, Stephen King novels. Uh, but Maine is a very small state. Uh, it's northern. It's uh, surrounded on two sides by Canada, and one side by water, and the other side, <laughs> New Hampshire. Uh, so it's a little bit isolated, and I think it's a very uh, independent, self-sufficient culture that I was brought up in. It's also very cold. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about what, what to expect for the holidays there. It's going to be snowy? Or? Uh, maybe snowy, lots of wood fires, wood smoke, uh, early twilight, and uh, maybe some ice, maybe some snow. But you never know in yeah. December. 
Are there are there the accents there that uh, you would associate with other New England? Is it considered part of New England? Oh, it's absolutely considered part of New England. Okay. And yes, the accent is very strong. But uh, there's also a big French-Canadian influence. So the French that's spoken there is really Quebecois. It's another form of Quebecois. But um, the main accent is distinct from the New Hampshire, Massachusetts accent. I can't uh, quite do it, but, you know, it's the typical, you can't get there from here, or the or my favorite, there's, it's a wicked pissa. Yeah. There's also a lot of Mainerisms. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite websites uh, is Mainer Ipsum, and so if you ever need sort of nonsense text for a website design, you can go on this and copy and paste, and it's just all these kind of nonsense expressions from Maine, but when I looked at it, it was one of those things where I, I realized, oh, a lot of these expressions that sound like nonsense are actually things I grew up with and didn't realize people didn't say or that it was a regionalism till I moved to Oregon. So like when I moved to Oregon, I didn't realize that you didn't say wicked as like a, an emphasis, like wicked rad, we used to say in the 80s a lot growing up. And I moved to Oregon. I was like, oh, uh, that's not a thing here. OK, <laughs> uh, so I adjusted my speech accordingly, I guess. You're saying that you used to say wicked and I don't get to hear you say that now in every day conversation. If I get drunk enough, I'll say wicked a lot. Okay, okay. Well, the night's young. So. <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't say that on the air. <laughs> um, I'll say wicked occasionally, but, uh, you know, you adapt your language to the people who are around you and to be understood. So you, sometimes you don't want to have a whole conversation about your uh your choice of word i suppose yeah do, do you um do you find those mannerisms coming back when you visit with other folks or when you're home not so much but sometimes it's more just you'll hear something that'll remind you of home and uh there is actually a gathering in new york city where i live now of mainers living in new york city and they kind of play it up a little bit uh more um, which is fine, but I think it's just more that unexpected thing when you hear someone say something like "supa," and then you realize, oh yeah, I always grew up eating eating some supa and not uh, eating dinner or something like that. So the, those are just things that remind you of your childhood and 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 uh, what that culture is. Yeah. Now you like all our other guests. Um, the the reason that we love to have our guests on our show. Um, you are an artist and writer and creative person, so I have to ask about your childhood in Maine. Um, if you were a weird kid, or these were things that you discovered later, your interest in the counterculture, and, and how you came to find that. I was always a weird kid. Uh, <laughs> I'm an only child of my mom's, and so I grew up often having myself for company, which was not a problem for me. Uh, I loved to make things and um, I was always encouraged to make things. So my mom, as I mentioned, was a landscape architect and she had these really nice colored pencils and she let me use the older ones to color, um, you know, the Prismacolor, I think they are, the, the very nice pencils that Maybe now people don't use them because they're designing on the computer. But um, I just always remember those being around. I had an art desk that was just piled with uh, craft supplies. We went to the Creative Reuse Center a lot to buy things to make, whether it was furniture for a dollhouse or clothes for dolls or whatever weird project I could think of making. Um, and I think 
that uh, I was also encouraged to play music or sometimes forced. I was <laughs> made to take piano lessons starting maybe around eight years old or so. Um, and that branched into wanting to try out so many different instruments. So um, my parents really, I think, deserve a Medal of Honor because I really wanted to play the clarinet yeah. in third grade. And if you ever have listened to the clarinet and listened to a child play the clarinet, it's really not that pleasant. <laughs> then I wanted to play drums. And they were like, okay. And then I wanted to play the trumpet. They were also like, okay. And all the, none of these are pleasant to listen to when you don't know how to play them. <laughs> then I wanted to play the guitar, which is the one I'm stuck with. And at least that, you don't have to play it very loud. Um, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I was definitely a weird kid because I always wanted to be making things. And uh, I always was writing and writing stories. And um, in middle school, my friend and I made our own newsletter about horses. It was okay. called the Equine Inquiry. Uh, it was perhaps you could say my first zine, yeah. but at that point, I didn't really know what zines were. We just wanted to share it with our friends, and we had a really good time uh, writing it and and putting it out. Um, I also used to make little cassette tapes of me playing music um, when I was a kid we'd get like all these old sort of um, cassette tapes, I think for whatever reason, they were sent to my father for some business thing. And, you know, I learned how you could put the tape over the little hole in the cassette tape and yeah. then record over the, the cassettes. So um, lots of fun just, just doing that and sort of amusing myself as a kid. So I think when I found things like, um, punk rock and zines, it just sort of innately made sense to me. Um, there's also a story, I mean, probably other kids don't do this. My best friend, Mark Miller, who taught me how to play drums, um, and I built a boat one summer <laughs> because we were bored and we just thought that would be cool. Let's try to build the boat and see if it floats. And it was made out of plywood. And it was really heavy, but it did float. And, you know, our parents were just like, sure, whatever, do whatever you want. <laughs> so um, I also spent a lot of time camping and canoeing and doing outdoor stuff. Um, and that stuff, once I discovered subcultural and countercultural stuff, I really let go of. But in my 30s, I'm really coming back to doing outdoor things. I do a lot of hiking and uh, don't think I'll ever be a hardcore camper again. Yeah. I hate being cold. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I, I do really appreciate that. I do appreciate the natural world and local topography and things like that. I can read a map um, and have a really good sense of direction. <laughs> I always thought the, you know, that James Lipton question, what's the, well, James Lipton by way of uh, some famous French person, I think. The, the One of the questions that he asks is, uh, what career besides your own would you like to try and I always thought cartography would have been interesting. Oh, yeah, it'd be fascinating. Um, though I don't know if I have the patience for it, but it's yeah. an interesting thing to imagine what it is like to translate the very large physical world to a flat object you can hold in your hand. Yeah. It's a good yeah. question. <laughs> it's a good question for any artist, really. <laughs> so. What, so what brought you from uh, the one Portland to the other? Well, so when I was um, probably around 16, uh, I discovered um, DIY music, indie rock, punk rock, 
I started mail ordering records from Kill Rock Stars and uh, K Records out in Olympia. So I developed this sort of fixation on the counterculture of the Pacific Northwest. It being the late 90s, that wasn't hard to do. Uh, Yo-Yo Agogo was happening at the time. So this music festival that brought together a lot of the bands of the era. Slater Kinney was a big headlining band and I really loved them and I really felt like they're feminist message really resonated with me as a teenager and then when I started reading zines so many of the people writing the zines were writing about this music scene out in Portland and Olympia so I I developed this kind of fascination with it um so I wanted to find a way to go out there and see what it was about because I really felt like this was my community more than the community that directly surrounded me there wasn't really a uh, indie rock community or a um, punk feminist community in Maine. I know that sounds shocking to you all, but um, there was a a more like crust punk uh, community. And that was cool because, but it really tended more towards the sort of anarcho peace punk thing, which again was great but and i do think one of the cool things about being from that subculture in maine is there were so few of you it didn't matter if you you know wanted to be in a weird um sonic youth slater kinney hybrid band like me and my friends (laughs) and i'm never going to play that music for you because it is terrible uh or if you played you know cross punk or you played ska like if you wanted to play independent music you had to play shows together and you had to go to each other's shows And I remember when I finally moved to Portland, Oregon, it felt like a relief that I didn't have to sit through these crust punk bands (laughs) to hear the band I wanted to hear. But at the same time, I think it really prevented most people from being really snobby about like, oh, will you make that and I make this because there just weren't enough people. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) you had to stick together. You had to stick together. Yeah, and what's cool is I think from that time, I still am close with a few people, uh, two of whom live in New York, um, and one of whom is a sort of really uh, high-end vegan chef now. So it's cool to see where people end <laughs> up. Um, but I, yeah, I developed a fascination with uh, Portland, Oregon. I um, went out there when I was 18 for the first time. I went to a writing camp at Lewis and Clark College, and um, my parents, who were always very supportive of my schemes, I wanted to go out to the camp a week early to help a zine pen pal set up an art show that she was uh, doing at a club called 17 Nautical Miles, which is kind of a iconic Portland indie rock club. It was run by Todd P, who's a big indie rock promoter now, DIY promoter in uh, in Brooklyn and Queens. And uh, my parents said, okay, stay with someone you've never met and <laughs> go, you know, kind of be an intern and set up this art show sure um and then i wanted to stay after the writing camp to go to yo-yo agogo 1999 in olympia and i didn't really have a plan i didn't really know how i was gonna get between portland and olympia i just knew i had some cousins that lived down in olympia in the summer on an island and it all worked out um and uh i think through that i really saw like Portland was a place I wanted to be. I was really inspired. I saw so many rock shows. It was really wonderful to be around other young people, especially young women, like making music and making zines and making art. So I really wanted to move out there. But uh, I didn't find a college I wanted to go 
out there. So I ended up taking a year off between high school and college and moving to Portland, Oregon. This turned out to be a very good thing because uh, Maine only has a million and a half people and Portland, Maine uh, has under 60,000 people. Yeah. So to move from a city of, or a metropolitan area really of 60,000 to a city of 600,000 approximately may sound like not much, especially if you live in LA or New York, but it was really big for me at the time. And I planned to go to New York City, but I'm very glad I had that sort of buffer time <laughs> to transition. Yeah. So now, one of the things that you were um, doing in Portland, which is still going on to this day, mm. was Portland Zine Symposium. Can you talk a little bit about how that came together? Totally. So, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think. Perzine culture really started to take off. So personal zines, people sharing stories. I think it came out of the Riot Girl zines. I'm just going to claim that it came out of the Riot Girl <laughs> zines, okay? I give give that credit. Uh, and I guess emo zines too. Um, that was more of a Midwestern thing, I think. Um, but Portland, Oregon became a real nexus of self-publishing culture, also facilitated by the Independent Publishing Resource Center that's there, which is one of my favorite organizations of all time, which provides classes and workspace and community gathering for self-publishers. And not just zine makers, but um, poets, uh, comic artists, anybody who's really making uh, self-published materials. But we uh, had seen these zine gatherings happening around the country, uh, places like Beantown, Zine Town in Boston, which no longer happens. Um, in Kansas City for a few years, there was the Midwest Underground Media Symposium, I believe it was called. And I had been to Beantown, Zine Town. Um, Nicole Georges, who was living there, was from Kansas City, so she'd been to Mom's... Um, there was a group of us who were involved in the IPRC, involved in publishing zines, and we said, you know, why doesn't Portland have an event like this? It's It really should. There's so much underground publishing activity happening here, so uh, let's make it happen. Um, we didn't have a plan in terms of we really thought we could do it on no money. <laughs> um, we were really uh, grateful to the IPRC, the Independent Publishing Resource Center, who kind of um, helped us get some donations. They So they served as our fiscal sponsor, even though there wasn't that formal arrangement. Uh, the Portland State University was, and the student groups there were really supportive. So we were able to pull this together. Um, of course, we were really ambitious. We wanted workshops and rock shows and social time and free food for everyone. And it was a big undertaking and it did work. But I think in subsequent years, we were able to scale it back a little bit and really focus on the mission, which was um, workshops and time for people to connect with each other and share and trade and sell zines which is, I think, more what it is to this day. And I think it's amazing how much it's actually stuck to that vision it, with completely different, with several sets of completely different organizers, which right. is, I think, when you start a project that's a public project, that's all you could really hope for yeah. is that it lives <laughs> on and continues to be valuable <laughs> to people. And it's been really great to go back to the symposium as a vendor and a presenter and not be like, 
Okay, uh, are all the logistics set? Do we have enough tables? Did I get the bagel donation? It's like, ah, I can just go and meet people. This is awesome. Yeah. So hats off to them. <laughs> Last week we were uh, at um, the podcast. We were at IE Zine Quest and uh, Rhea, Rhea, who's one of the LA Zine Fest founders and organizers, was with, uh, was with us. And I asked her, I'm like, so what's it like? You know, you're not tabling today. You're just hanging out with Daisy, Noemi, and I. And you're not an organizer here. She's like, yeah pretty good don't have a worry in the world Mm -hmm. just floating around yeah it definitely being an organizer for a large-scale public event really makes you appreciate the time and energy and effort that goes into bringing people together but it's a really rewarding thing to do um so i worked on the zine symposium i would come back to portland in the summers during college until 2004 because i just wanted to see it live on (laughs) and i really loved it and was really uh invested in it. Funny enough, it kind of helped me get my first real job out of college, uh, which was running public programs at the Brooklyn Museum, among many other things. And they were like, can you put on large scale public events on a limited budget? I was like, yeah, I can do it on no budget. You have a museum and like already have audio equipment. And like, all you need me to do is like find and hire performers in a coherent way. No problem. Right. Sounds easy. (laughs) Now, what point had you started your zine indulgence? Was that already in Maine or? Okay. Yeah. um, Indulgence started when I was a, junior in high school, I believe, um, in Maine. Um, I had started a more eclectic zine with my best friend, Ariel. Uh, it was called Random. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and we just, into that, we put comics and kind of a political opinion pieces and, you know, took submissions from other people and left it at coffee shops around town. And it was fun, but, Um, I think I wanted a more intimate way to share like some of the issues I was dealing with. Um, I think at that point I was coming out as queer and wanting to kind of process that and talk about feminist issues and, um, talk about the books I was reading, the music I was listening to. So, um, I remember a teacher, my sophomore year of high school, we were doing sort of a personal memoir writing class and, uh, she was like, there was some, there were some people who say that memoir writing and nonfiction personal writing is the most self-indulgent form of writing. And I was like, well, fine, you know, I'm going <laughs> to just take that and run with it. And I feel to me that I've stuck with the title. It's been over 15 years now uh, and it still resonates with me. Just funny because around this time I also I think made up my internet handle, which I still use and still resonates with me too, which is Killer Femme. So, um, I guess I had some forethought <laughs> as a teenager. <laughs> so you, where did you end up going to college? I went to Eugene Lang College. It's part of the new school in New York City. It's a very small liberal arts college. Um, at that point, there was no majors. I think I picked it because I didn't have to take math and science. And I really loved that there was seminar style classes. There was a focus on writing and it was very political school. So my degree, <laughs> if you must know, is in race, ethnicity, and post-colonial studies wow. with a path in education uh, as well. So I was psyched that I got to think about that stuff for four years. And you were, you were like you said, you were going back to Portland 
Oregon in the summers mm-hmm. uh, as far as part of symposium um, till 2004. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you were out of, uh, w- once you were finished with your bachelor's, you, where did you get your? So I stayed in New York after I finished college and I always thought uh, I would leave New York. I mm-hmm. wanted to go back to the West Coast. I came up with all these ideas of places I wanted to move. I wanted to move to Europe. Um, You know, every couple of months I'd sort of fixate on a different place I wanted to be. Uh, But I started working in the arts in New York and I realized I'd interned for various artists and arts organizations throughout college and I was lucky enough to uh, have one internship at POV American Documentary who uh, showcase uh, independent documentaries on PBS that turned into a summer job. And then I got hired at the Brooklyn Museum for a year-long fellowship uh, teaching kids in the galleries. So I was suddenly finding like opportunities that I wanted to find and things I was interested in New York. And I kept saying, okay, just three more years. I'm going <laughs> to stay here and then, then I'm gone. I really don't like it here. And um, then I just kept staying and I realized, you know, I, I do like it here. Uh, <laughs> My friends are here. I know how to ride my bike around without getting killed. Uh, There's many things I'm interested in. I can take French classes and uh, go to free shows in the summer at the park or down by the pier. And it's just, it's a really cool place. Um, I have lived in Brooklyn since 2002 and found life to be a little slower in Brooklyn, a little more manageable. I could really shape it a little bit more how I wanted, though it is expensive and it's a hustle. But um, I stayed in New York. I was working at the Brooklyn Museum doing public programming and education. And uh, my master's is less exciting than my undergraduate. So I went to Baruch College, City University of New York. I went part-time while I worked full-time. and uh, But what I found was Uh, I really wanted to know more about how creative businesses and organizations are run. So I realized that working in the arts, no one was going to sit me down and tell me how a budget was made. Right. They didn't, that was not a skill set they necessarily had. So when I thought about like, I don't need to go back and do a degree in arts or writing. Like, that's part of my life. That will always be part of my life. I need to go and learn things I will never sit down and teach myself. So I found this program at Baruch. Uh, It was not uh, geared specifically towards nonprofits or towards the arts, but it encompassed that. Uh, It's public administration. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was great. Uh, What I took away from that was I love statistics and economics budgeting and finance. It was a revelation to have these passionate teachers, all of them women, all my statistics, economics, and finance teachers were women, uh, except for one who had been, I think, a secretary of health and education, an economic advisor for health and education under Bill Clinton. Uh, He was a guy. And it just changed the way I thought about uh, the work I was doing and how to approach it and had a way to talk about it and measure it. And I just found that highly valuable, so. Now during these years, when you're, um, as you have said, learning to stop worrying and love statistical and budgetary analysis, um, you're 
are you able to stay plugged into what was going on with your zine and music interest at the time? Or were you just like school, 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 school? <laughs> like, cause I mean, it's any school is hard, but once you're in the graduate level, it's. Uh, that's a good question. I'm sort of thinking about my time frame for a while. I published an issue of my zine indulgence number 10, actually on the 10th anniversary year of the zine before I went to school and issue number and that was in 2008 and issue number 11 <laughs> came out five years later this year <laughs> so you know I've taken some pauses yeah. between the zine but um I did join Corita in the fall of 2008 so while I was going to graduate school I was also playing a, in a band. So I felt like I sometimes shifted my attention from DIY publishing to music. But while I was playing music and in school, I also was writing um, show reviews and record reviews for publications like Venus Zine, which sadly no longer exists. But some of the editors from Venus now do Box Magazine, mm -hmm. who I do write for still. Um, and just trying to explore other avenues for writing because I realized that in all of this, I'd always wanted to be a writer and thought of myself as a writer, but there came to be a point where I wasn't actually writing except in my journal. And so I, and sometimes I wasn't even doing that, Yeah. but I was finding myself very jealous of like people who were actually publishing and writing. <laughs> and I was like, well, let's, let's think about this. Like, what can you do to solve this problem? So I used like reviewing shows as a way to just start practicing writing and working with an editor. Um, and that was a really helpful experience. And also just by reviewing shows, um, I met one of my um, ardent supporters and creative collaborators, which is a photographer named Dominic Mastrangelo. Um, he was the photographer assigned to my review and uh, we've been great friends since 2008. So it's really neat what else, what other creative connections can kind of come out of these experiences. So, yeah. and, and as you said, you uh, started to play with Corita. Uh, Corita just recently disbanded. Yeah. This spring. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, tell me a little bit about your adventures in Corita. Well, Corita never played outside of New York City except to play South by Southwest um, unofficial shows in Austin in 2012. Um, but Corita was a shoegaze indie rock band. Um, three women, myself, Marisha on guitar, me and Marisha on guitar and vocals, and Aileen on bass and vocals, and our friend Nick on drums. And Nick and Marisha had played together uh, for years in different bands. And I had met Aileen actually met quote unquote, uh, on the typical girls emailing list, which is an emailing list for post-punk music made by women. So people who are fans of this music back in 2000. And, uh, when I moved to the city in 2001, there was a DJ night, a post-punk DJ night by Dan Selzer. It was called Transmission and Aileen, there and she knows a lot about post-punk <laughs> a lot um she knows a lot about music so she was sort of held up as this music historian alien and i was kind of nervous to meet her she was almost like a celebrity on this yeah. emailing list so um we tried playing music in the past together and it hadn't really worked out but i was totally excited when i found out she was the bass player in this band and 
Corita in itself, I think it was definitely an experience where you share a creative vision and it's really gratifying to bring that to light. But by working with people, you make it better than you could have made it on your own. Um, and it's nice to be on the same page with creative goals. So to me, that sort of friendship and camaraderie was almost just as important as the songs we were writing. And I think for me, it actually really helped me move from a pretty distraught and place personally in my life and a little bit at loose ends to feeling really focused and feeling like I could accomplish things like personally and creatively. So that's the power I think of collaboration and rock and roll, obviously <laughs> just playing right. in a rock man is awesome. <laughs> it's also just a funny, weird thing when you're in your thirties and playing in a rock man. I guess I wasn't in my thirties yet then, but you know, we all have jobs and so you're up till really late and yeah. then you're kind of shaking you know, the glitter out of your hair or whatever. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. And going into work the next day and just being like, yeah, okay, I'm fine. A little hungover, whatever. <laughs> you know. Uh, when did you start blogging from killerfem.com? Uh, I mean, I finally bought the domain name. Um, I don't remember when. But um, so killerfem.com is, is my personal blog. Um, I think I started working on it more consistently in 2010. Um, I was then working at the Rubin Museum of Art doing um, podcasts, actually, and audio tours and video and um, blogs for their education department. And I had started reading a lot of fashion and design blogs and realized I needed to sort of up my own blogging game. Um, I had a neglected Blogspot blog, so I shifted from Blogspot to WordPress um, just because I knew that content management system a little better and made my blog look nicer and shifted the focus to be more visual, to really focus on fashion, travel, and just kind of personal experience. But I was just talking to uh, the women at Calabra at their monthly craft night uh, the other day that for me, the zine is very deeply thoughtful personal writing. It's much more essay style, mm -hmm. which isn't, it's just a little too long form for the blog. The blog is more like vignette and it's yeah. very visual driven. And it's more just like, here's some cool stuff I got to do, you know? Um, and uh, that was just fun to have an outlet like that. And also I think, in, during that time, I was starting to use Twitter a lot more heavily and, and started to be on Instagram and, and really use social media to connect to people the way I used to connect to people through zines. And I think it's really important when you're doing that to have a blog and have a more thoughtful presence because people want to know who you are. And there's a level of trust that if they can click on that link in your profile and see you're a real person who's interacting with the world, they're going to be more happy to interact with you more deeply online. I, I think that's true. So it's, it was kind of interesting. I, I've, I've studied French for a long time. I'm fluent in French. And um, I started reading French blogs as a way to just keep up my language and then started following them the French bloggers on Twitter and start interacting and um, find now that I have this really great community of DIY and fashion focused bloggers in France, which is wonderful because yeah. I um, have friends in France. My sister lives in France and it's awesome to know 
people that are like us, but in France. Yeah. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey, bonjour. <laughs> Ça va? <laughs> if you're listening. Oops. <laughs> so let's talk about what brought us together. Um, because I think that it's the culmination of not only, well, what brought us together uh, thematically <laughs> and brought you here today is not only a culmination of your work and your life, but what we do here on the podcast and what we talk to all our guests about, you have written the book on. <laughs> um, Shaky Town Radio is about talking to creative, creative folks, how do they make a living, uh, and stay creative. How do they balance that? And specifically for Shaky Town, we talk about how they do that in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, you're visiting us from Brooklyn, um, but we met when you came through town on a book tour um, about uh, how to take your DIY project and passion to the next level and quit your job. This is the book Grow. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had the pleasure of meeting you when you did a panel with um, at Stories in Echo Park uh, with the Academy of Handmade Design Supporters. Mm-hmm. Did I say the full name? I uh, just I just it, call yeah. them the Academy because it <laughs> sounds like an Assassin's Guild when I say oh, it yes. like that. The Academy of Handmade. Yeah. Yes, Academy of Handmade. Um, and Iris Porter was also on the panel, who uh, I love to talk to on the show sometime, who has covered uh, DIY scenes in different cities mm-hmm. um, and is really fun to hang out with. Uh, yes. <laughs> is a hurricane. Absolutely. Uh, on her own. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about what how this book manifested sure if i can sound a little bit spiritual about absolutely it. <laughs> iris would say manifest what you want and be specific and i think for me writing grow was really about manifesting what i wanted um because so grow is a practical field guide for creative people to achieve success and sustainability on their own terms. So when we talk about how creatives support each other and how they support themselves, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be doing your creative passion as a full-time job to be successful. I just want to be clear about that. But if that is your goal, I hope that the book kind of shows a roadmap of how you could get there. So um, it came out of all the experiences I've just been talking about on the first part of the show, uh, working with artists through like Portland Zine Symposium, through my internships in New York City at the Brooklyn Museum, and then later at my uh, most recent job at the New York Foundation for the Arts. And what I found was whether artists were more on the DIY side or the more professional side, they all shared similar concerns, similar experiences, and similar challenges, especially around around how do you translate the thing that you're passionate about that you love into something that's understandable to people outside of maybe it's just you or your immediate circle and how do you get it out to the world to see and how do you do that in a way that's in a way they want to see it or they understand it so what does that mean that means everything from having a great press release or really good bio or press photos to having a plan about how you're going to make money or where you're going to get insurance from or if you do want to start something like the portland zine symposium uh, how can you do that in a way where you cover all your bases and you can feel confident about it which you know we didn't always know we just had a lot of i think beginner's luck uh, (laughs) when we started it So it came out of all these experiences and then working more on the professional side of the arts as an arts administrator. 
And then, as we know, I love statistics and budgeting and finance, trying to translate some of those more quantitative skills um, to artists and creatives in a way that applied to their businesses. Because yes, there's great resources for small businesses out there, but if you're not thinking of yourself as a small business owner, or it doesn't completely apply to you, it can be hard to make those conceptual leaps. So I wanted to make those conceptual leaps for creatives in this book. So um, I had an idea that I wanted to do a book something like this for a long time. And when I started working at the New York Foundation for the Arts, I could see the need was there. And there's a lot of great books about helping artists be better business people, helping crafters be better business people. But I didn't feel like there was one that really talked to everyone as like a creative group and said, here's the common things to think about and really sort of highlighted DIY. Um, and I worked with Microcosm Publishing to put it out because I felt like they had a solid track record of putting out nonfiction how-to books, but mm -hmm. they seem to focus on things like how to have a garden, how to uh, make this or make that. And I was like, what's the next step? What if people love doing this and they <laughs> want to do it forever? How are they going to do that? So I felt like they were um, tapping into an audience that I felt could use this information, but it, w it went beyond that audience too. So yeah. yeah. You took your experiences and you disseminated this information all in one handy guide. Um, which is why I love it. And it's not only like a, a front cover to back cover read, although I did read it that way, but it's also a resource you can keep going back to yeah, and, and look for tips. And I think that's for me, um, one of the first questions I was asked actually by my former boss when I told him about the book was why make a book now these days? Why not make it an ebook? Or And what I think is really interesting is that um, my publisher told me is that how-to books don't sell so well on the ebook market because you want it to be a guide that you come back to. It's a reference book that you have on your shelf to reassure you or to answer your question yeah. or to give you some inspiration. So I've noticed just in my own book buying habits, the books I actually buy are the more nonfiction reference books, whereas novels and uh, more creative nonfiction I'll get from the library because I'm going to tear through it once and then maybe if I really if it really resonates with me maybe I'll buy it to have it on hand as a different kind of reference book but I would like to think that grow is something you could keep with you and for many phases of your project yeah, I do I just took it literally off my shelf thank you <laughs> you are a model reader <laughs> I also want to say that um, just an the way of collaboration grow is designed by Megan Pomerlow. And I think that she really took my vision and provided some really great illustrations and beautiful hand lettering. So it makes it really appealing and, and feel like a nice step, I think, between a book and a zine. Yeah. It's a small book. You can put it in your purse, ladies. I, I have a bag now as well that I'm going to keep it in. Excellent. I showed you the bag earlier. Yes, it's a nice handmade bag. It's perfect. Yeah, Erica Sender made it, our, our good friend Erica. Um, I carry it with me every day. I love it. And I will carry this book in that bag. You don't have to carry Grow with you every no, day, every there's, place. there's room for it. It makes sense. <laughs> I, I think actually that's a good idea. I've been trying to figure out what, because I am going to carry this bag with me, I've been trying to figure out what items I should have in it. I feel like I should have a, cop, a couple copies of Fair Dig. Mm-hmm ready you know mm -hmm. to hand out and maybe maybe some business cards uh, you should have some business cards for both yes. myself and for shaky town radio i uh, guess mm -hmm. uh this book maybe sure um pepper spray 
Okay. Uh, nunchucks. Oh, that's heavy. Your yeah. bag's getting really heavy. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of other items that I could have in there. Let's look around the room. I have a Moleskine notebook and pens in my bag at all times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sunglasses. Deck of cards, maybe. A cliff bar. Water bottle. You've already filled up your bag like twice. Right. Oh, and my new skeleton suit. Have you seen the new skeleton suit? No, you're going to have to show me after the podcast. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about it. Okay. It was always my dream to own a skeleton suit. Uh, That dream came true November 1st, which was my birthday. (laughs) Oh, I was going to say, was it on sale after Halloween? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's the reason why. It was 75% off. Um, I'll put the video up, though, on shakytownradio.com. You can see that I started using it right away. Excellent. I'm excited to see it. Yeah, that'll be in. Maybe I'll put that in the bag. But you're right, it is already a heavy bag. Um, Watch the master of the Segway. You took heavy bags with you probably when you were on the road. (laughs) Ooh, good segue. I can segue from anywhere. Mm -hmm. No, I do want to talk about this tour uh, that you did because it's a great accomplishment to have a book published that people buy and read and is in their homes. And you have this now. Thank you. But on top of that, even, um, Corita may have never played outside of New York Save the, the Texas Show. But you, Eleanor Whitney, with your book Grow, went out on the road. Uh, you did panels. You did, I, I've heard radio appearances. Um, I got to be on Good Day Tulsa. Yeah. That was my highlight, my media highlight. Yeah. So Tulsa's really awesome, exciting creative community right now, um, as is Kansas City and Omaha and Cincinnati. But yeah, I got to be on Good Day Tulsa. That was awesome. <laughs> so how, how long was the tour? How many stops? So I did the tour in uh, chunks uh, because if you, we want to talk about how you sort of balance and support your life, uh, I did a crowdfunding campaign to support the tour. Um, when you work with awesome independent publishers, they don't often provide any uh, financial support for doing the tour part of the book. But of course, um, publishers, distributors, ourselves as authors, it's really important to get out there and meet people and connect with your public. Um, And increasingly, actually, for even authors on, um, I almost call them major labels, (laughs) publishing with major publishing houses, there's less money for, for the book tour and that kind of promotion. So All that being said, I was still working full time. Um, So I broke up the tour into regions of the country and did uh, appearances in the Northeast, uh, in Philadelphia, Boston, Providence, and Portland, Maine, my hometown, uh, on weekends, and then did uh, two weeks in the Midwest and about a week and a half on the West Coast, and then a weekend in LA very early on, and then a weekend, of course, in New York. and a few other events in New York. So uh, all told, I believe I was in 24 cities uh, over the course of a few months between um, late May and uh, August. So it was a lot. I mean, I was on the road for the Midwest for about two weeks, and that was probably the longest like extent of it. I mean, the thing of touring with a book, it's a heck of a lot simpler than touring with a band. Yeah. Um, I didn't even need a PowerPoint. I just was, it was really more about talking and connecting with people. So the great thing about Grow and this idea of like creative entrepreneurship is you can do it 
um, with so many different types of people. Lots of people want to talk about this. So I connected with host venues that were everything from the Philbrook Museum of Art in Tulsa to the Walker Art Center in um, the Twin Cities of Minneapolis to St. Paul Neighborhood Network in St. Paul, Minnesota to Dehive in Detroit, which is fostering creative businesses and just Detroit as a vibrant place to be, which it is, um, to events in uh, Backyard of a Cafe in Madison, Wisconsin, um, with Handmade Madison, who are a cl uh, consortium of, of crafters and makers, uh, to the library in Olympia, Washington. So really wide range of organizations, which is really what was exciting to me. So sometimes I'd be talking with another person. Sometimes there would be a panel discussion. We did a panel of creative businesses in Logan Square in Chicago with I am Logan Square. Um, or it would just be me sort of facilitating a conversation or a workshop with a group of people. Yeah. So it was really fun. Um, as I'm talking to you about it, I'm realizing that was a lot of really intense uh, touring yeah. and work. I, I'll be honest, I was very tired. <laughs> but I got back to New York City. <laughs> I was very tired. Do you, do you feel the 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 rock star dream within you as as that uh, the travel tour aspect of it been fulfilled a little bit like can you say now that hey I did that I I, I did a tour or does it just make you want to do more I'm a compulsive traveler so it just makes me want to do more but I think also being on the road so much and seeing how many creative communities are out there. It taught me a few things about where I am and where I live and what I do. And one thing I learned is that Brooklyn, though uh, we seem to be leading some kind of um, handmade, crafted, DIY, make your own mustard and sell it at Schmorgageburg, uh, cultural zeitgeist, we're really not that unique. LA and Brooklyn, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, you know, these are cities that are really held up as like um, nexuses of kind of creative businesses. And, and that is true, but you find that all over the country in places that maybe don't always get held up as these creative centers, but really should be because they're providing creatives with other things that they need, like accessible space and equipment to work. Um, markets that maybe aren't totally saturated or lower startup cost. And I think, so I was finding all that artisanal stuff and energy that I find in Brooklyn, in, in Cincinnati, in Detroit, of course, in Omaha, in Tulsa, in Olympia, in Sacramento. Um, so I realized, okay, that's not necessarily what makes New York unique. But I also found that I really enjoy where I live and it means a lot to me to live there because there are things that make creatives lives easier that you don't always think about as supporting creative business. So what do I mean? I mean a robust public library system. Um, the Brooklyn Public Library has a new space that's for makers and creatives. It's almost like a co-working space in the library. Wow. It's a media lab too. It's so cool. Um, so this city is like investing in this. We have great public tr transportation infrastructure. Okay, don't ask me when I've been waiting at 2 a.m. for 45 minutes on a train platform. I'll give you a different answer. <laughs> but I realized the fact that I didn't have to drive, I don't have to have a car, I can bike, I can walk, I can take the train is actually a big asset for connecting with people all over the city. So there is a higher concentration of, 
of people and there's a place to take things that's a little further than you might be able to in a smaller place. So I, I, I saw the value of all these different places and different kinds of creative economies, I think, within the United States. But I think my big takeaway from it is like, you know, if I was growing up now in Portland, Maine, I don't know if I'd need to move to Portland, Oregon or to Brooklyn to do the sort of creative work I've done. There's, it's really burgeoning all over the country that people are seeing like the creative economy is really powerful and um, people are really transforming urban spaces and rural spaces through creative vision. No, it sounds like a very, you, you sound optimistic and it's, it's really great. Uh, it, it makes me hopeful. I, I, w I did want to ask you, having been touring around, what your sense was of the morale um, based on the, the economy at large in the mm -hmm. United States for the last uh, few years. Um, I mean, it seems like some bus like businesses are starting to bounce back, um, but it's just, it's just hard out there. I it mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you, you are a badass if you have been able to survive in new york for over 10 years now um like the fact that when you were saying that i was like oh my god uh, i think about the fact that i've been in los angeles now mm -hmm. for seven years um it's not i've not even done it all by myself i'm with a partner mm -hmm. um and you know i i have a privileged life but it, it is hard to mm -hmm. and every guest we talk to it, it's hard um even even for the high profile oh, yeah. like actresses and actors that we've had on the show, it like it's still a hustle. Yeah, and you're living in the city. Oh yeah, you having been to other towns um, beyond the like you said the the major nexuses that people think of. Like what's what's it what's what's the morale out yeah. there right now? Like how helpful mm -hmm. are people mm -hmm. trying to manage their creative life but also pay the bills? Great question. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think something I've been noticing a lot with with creatives and uh, and just like you said, even higher profile people that we imagine they have this maybe plush life that's, that's comfortable. It's actually the margins when it comes to making a living and breaking even are very, very small. And uh, I've, what I found is even people who appear very successful and are very successful in terms of getting their product or service or idea or brand out there are still really pushing and many of them are still working other jobs um, or they have a partner who supports them. Uh, so their creative business is a second income or you know, they've been lucky enough to maybe inherit money or there there's something else that's that's helped them support their business, which is, you know, maybe not really out of the ordinary of how any business starts sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, we sometimes take resources from somewhere else to put it into this creative vision. But I just want to say that too by a word of caution because I think there's this idea in society right now, this this idea of being creative is very hot, I think. And the idea that, you know, you can have a, a dream and a skill and promote yourself and, and get out there. And, you know, I do want to believe that and you do see that, but that there's a lot of steps in between there. So I think people are frustrated because they do feel like they've put a lot into their vision and it is hard to make that switch actually to doing it full time. And one thing I was thinking about is that there's a lot of 
people, I mean, much like the, the organizers for the LA Zine Fest, or people who are organizing and being catalysts for creative community, who are also wondering, like, how do I make this sustainable for myself? How do I make this be a viable business model so that not only can I offer things of value to other creatives, but, but sustain my life so that this can be my full-time job because I love it, but I need to, I need to pay my bills. And I don't know if anyone has really the answer to that question yet. And I think I actually want to convene some of the people who hosted me um, on the tour. Maybe it's just a um, virtual convening on like a Google Hangout or something and talk together about what is our next step to sustain ourselves? Because the economy is really difficult. And um, especially, you know, resources don't always trickle down. <laughs> they, they really don't. And also, I think when I think about what are we making, what is the product or service we're selling to people? Is that like a sort of frivolous consumer item? And, and that's okay if it is. I mean, there's it's important to have things that add beauty and whimsy and imagination and creativity to our lives. Um, but it's hard when you start thinking about like, what's the economic basis driving this creation? So really wondering like, you know, if we're just making more things for people to consume, yeah, it's great to, to buy local, to buy handmade, to buy things from where you can meet the maker, but what happens if the economy does go, you know, gets worse again or continues to get worse? Um, where does that leave us? So I think these are big questions to think about and um, try to come up with strategies to deal with them together as, as, as creatives who are making and producing and really thinking about how does this stay sustainable for me? So, um, I also feel that sometimes we want to to run and like make our passion our full-time job and I think that's great but I also feel that sometimes I get a lot of value out of the the jobs that I do because it opens me up to different ways of doing things uh, different groups of people who I wouldn't necessarily meet who might not consider themselves creatives and, and different skills so also finding value in that I think is really important but yeah, I think a lot of people are hopeful. They're putting a lot of energy. They're they're being excited. They're driving towards their goals, but they're also frustrated and sort of wondering like, when's the burnout factor going to happen? And I don't want it to, but you know, how can I how can I prevent that? Right. Uh, what would you say was the most surprising lesson for you as you began to, uh, like I said, disseminate this information and and manifest it into a tangible book and and we're figuring out how you were going to lay out the lessons here in the book was there anything new that occurred to you as you began to frame things where you start started to see some tree in the forest you know see the forest for the trees and uh, something was like oh wait oh yeah that's the thing i should put in there and i didn't even realize that until i saw this next to this or something uh, you know equally when you were on your tour as you talked to um, these folks in different t towns. Yeah. I mean, the book, it's funny to think about because I've gotten really used to it in its final form. And sometimes when you see something for so long, you forget the, pro the long process it took to get there. I definitely cut out an entire section that I can't even remember what it was going <laughs> to be on. But I think I combined 
um, ideas around building your identity and more kind of straightforward like marketing lessons um, and also at first I thought that the chapter that was um, kind of about business structure had to be about like legal issues for your creative business and I was getting really nervous about writing that chapter because I'm not a lawyer I'm not an accountant I'm really not qualified in that way to give this advice but then I realized it was more about the structural approach to those issues and like what are things what are the bases you need to cover so I think I realized I don't need to be the expert in that way I don't need to pretend that I know everything about um, the laws that regard business structures, which vary state by state. So, you know, who knows all that stuff? Some smart people. Um, but I need to tell people why they might need to know this and give them ways to approach it in a way that's going to be helpful for them. So just realizing what my role was as an author. And that's also why I should say grow doesn't just have my voice. It has the voice of about 15 other smart creative business owners and uh, independent creatives and artists, writers, um, DIY fitness people, (laughs) food folks, etc. to talk through their issues. So really feeling like those were places where I I didn't know and didn't have the background. I really would highlight the people uh, that I interviewed. So that was fun. Um, I think in terms of learning on tour and something that opened my eyes is just there's a lot that creatives share uh, throughout the country, but there was different needs and conversations. So in New York, and maybe this is similar in Los Angeles, big you know, expensive city where startup costs of of doing an event or opening a space or finding the right equipment to make the thing you want can be expensive and time consuming and a challenge. So what I hear in New York is like, I need money. I need resources. How do I find those to do this thing? And then what I was hearing in other places is I have this thing. I need an audience. I need to connect with more customers, clients, audience members, whatever it is. So that And of course, everybody needs both of those things, but just hearing that those were different kinds of needs depending where you were located was eye-opening for me. So now that the book tour is over and uh, you're back in Brooklyn uh, pursuing your own interests and one of those is a new band, Mm -hmm. are you at liberty to discuss any of it yet? (laughs) I'm at liberty to do anything now. Um, So... Marisha, the guitarist, other guitarists from Korea Tonight are working on a new project. If anyone is listening in Brooklyn and plays bass, drums, or keyboard, and you want to <laughs> play some shoegaze, um, get in touch and would love to have you. So um, we're really thinking about what's our creative vision moving forward and writing songs. And it's it's really fun to have a more focused songwriting time. Um, I'm working on a new zine that's uh, three personal essays Uh, it's going to be indulgence number 12 it will hopefully be premiering at the la zine fest uh 2014 and uh focusing on work love and death which are (laughs) three things that have been defining 2013 for me uh so me too (laughs) yes indeed Uh, maybe these are just what um everyone is always dealing with maybe those are the things that make the world go down. And I might have a recipe because food is the other thing <laughs> right, that I <right>. love. <laughs> right. Um, have you thought 
at all about a second book, a follow-up to Grow, or just a different kind of book altogether? Or are you still recovering from the creation and the tour mm. for this book? I've thought about a lot of a lot of different books. So I think the, the always the challenge with creative people is focus, right? And really finding the project that yes. speaks to that you're willing to carry through to the end. So I'm not really sure what that is yet. I've thought about doing a book more focused on the finance and the money part of it because that's a part I really love yeah. and creatives really struggle with. And I just, I'm sorry, I could talk about finances all all day <laughs> and like fundraising and crowdfunding. I love this stuff I, I, I because I think getting a handle on money and knowing and feeling confident that you can build support for project is really powerful and really empowering. So I, I want to explore that more, but I'm also interested actually just in this idea we talked about, about creative places. Now, creative placemaking is a big buzzword in the arts funding right now. So it's not creative placemaking, but what are different cities like creatively? You know, what's happening there? Maybe snapshots of that. Um, I love cities. I love travel, as I've talked about. So maybe getting more into that. Um, also, I am going to work on a more hands-on activity sheet kind of ebook that will accompany Grow that will be coming out this winter to help people really get going uh, with their projects a little bit really, really concretely. So that will be coming out, but, um, and I'll self-release that, but, uh, I'm also thinking about writing a novel. <laughs> so oh, I think now the book writing process seems a little less scary to me. And I, I'm, I really consider myself a nonfiction writer, but this idea has been actually following me around since 2008. And, you know, when an idea is that persistent at a certain point, you have to give it some weight or it's never going to leave you alone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a raven kind of pecking at you and like sitting at your shoulder. So fine. I, I And I, my novel is not going to be very serious, but um, I'm, I'm looking forward to working on that. Oh, good. And uh, you're continuing to write uh, at killerfem.com and uh, also the, the uh, related social media you can find uh, twitter.com slash or I guess we can just say at Killer Femme. At Killer Femme. I also write about DIY entrepreneurship in my own career journey. I'm uh, shifting towards working with entrepreneurial creative companies. So I've been talking about that journey as well as sharing more resources and tips and ideas and DIY business profiles at growdiy.com as well as writing a bi-monthly column for Dear Handmade Life blog so Very great blog uh aurora our friend aurora ladies on there i've been interviewed on there um that's right yeah love yeah. that site great site um and, and grow diy i wanted to mention like you have a worksheet that folks can download mm -hmm. from there mm -hmm. um that a uh, a creative partner of mine and i have have struggled over <laughs> it, it asks the hard questions <laughs> like, yeah uh it, it's great i love I, I love that work i had a, downloaded that worksheet even before i got the book cool and, um yeah so I definitely recommend everybody go check that out. It's it's focuses on setting your mission goals and timeline. So yeah, easy questions to ask, hard questions to answer. Very hard questions. To <laughs> um, and we can see your your all your stuff is linked at eleanorcwhitney.com. That's right. Um, as we mentioned, um, dear handmade life, and um, what else? What else for two thousand fourteen? 
what uh what do you what are you, what are you thinking well i'm excited for 2014 um I am going to be speaking at South by Southwest Interactive yes, and I Music. I voted for you. Thank you I so much. You, I want you to know that. I appreciate <laughs> that. I, I really appreciate everyone's support. Everything's crowdsourced these days, yeah. so we, we we love your support. I'll be talking about navigating the new handmade economy with the Academy of Handmade, uh, and then I'll be talking about uh, keeping track of your data for musicians um, at South by Southwest Music. So really excited for that. Also going to be speaking at Craftcation Conference out here in Southern California in early April. Um, You know, 2014 at this point's an open book. New zine, want to get going on some writing projects and want to figure out what's next for me Professionally, I passed a big milestone this morning. I created an account on GitHub, so maybe I'll be writing some sweet code and making some apps for y'all yeah. to help you with the things related to grow. That is, that is, that might happen in the next ten weeks because I'm <laughs> starting a class. So, so maybe I'll be a hotshot uh, Ruby on Rails developer. We'll see. I know the West Coast isn't so into Ruby, but (laughs) Ruby has a huge community in New York, guys. (laughs) Maybe after hearing this podcast, you'll you'll be the launching point for it here for people to get... I hope it's not me. (laughs) I am a mere amateur (laughs) with this stuff. But but I do think that uh, thinking about how technology... Uh, can be helpful for creatives and small business resources. Uh, I have a colleague, uh, Courtney Hard, who runs Colloquy Collective Theater Company, who's always telling me about the coolest new apps and resources to help me run my creative practice better. So um, I would maybe like to create some myself, we'll yeah. see, or, or work with people who create them, uh, or just enjoy and appreciate what's already been made out there. Very good. Well, Eleanor, uh, I, I, I have to be honest and personal. Just I, I appreciate not only what you brought from this book and, and your work and everything you shared with us today, but uh, I mean, you've definitely been, for me, inspiring and supportive on a personal level, so I appreciate that. Um, I just want the audience to know how awesome you are and that I consider you a friend. Uh, uh, Shaky Town Radio, now you are a friend of the podcast you can come anytime. You can host. We can go bother people. Maybe uh, at LA Zine Fest. Sounds great. Uh, we should both be there. Yes. And uh, we can. We'll, we'll hope to hear from you then. And um... well, I mean, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> totally mutual. Y'all just need to know where the biases in this recording <laughs> yeah. lie. Uh, and I, likewise, I think it's just wonderful. The greatest thing about doing these kind of DIY projects is connecting with people. For me, that's really the point. Um, Anyone can, well, not anyone, many people can tell you how to make a budget or how to set goals, but it's really about the the spirit and the understanding and the camaraderie behind that. And uh, heck, maybe you guys want to come to Brooklyn, though I don't have a cool soundproof (laughs) studio in my backyard. (laughs) If you want to have an addition. I also have a nice view from my apartment just like yeah. you have a nice view here <laughs> yeah I, I do want to bring shaky town to uh shaky town takes new york mm-hmm. at some point some point so far we've uh, taken riverside sweet um redlands good san diego amazing 
and um you know culver city will be next in february sweet so yeah at some point we'll have to do the the first out of california shaky town so we'll look you up there i'll be there so eleanor and i are gonna go eat vegan donuts now i'm so ready for a vegan donut all right yeah cool but uh until next time i am brody foster hubbard i'm eleanor whitney merci à écouter à shaky down radio uh, uh los angeles california à bientôt <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>